All right, story fans. It's that time of year again. So dust off your devil horns and your worn-out VHS copies of Hocus Pocus. Because it's October, and that means Halloween! <laughs> that spooky, ghoulish night where goblins and ghosts roam free, and spooky bumps and creaks take on a sinister spin. What noises do you hear in the dark? This week, we bring you two stories of Halloween magic. Two stories of those moments where ghosts are real, where witchcraft is working, and where bumps in the night can't be wiped away with logic or reason. This is the second story spook cast. Our first story this spooky evening comes from second story general manager, Liz Gottman. Liz is a company member with Second Story and keeps this group running smoothly and free of hauntings. With her ghostly tale titled Beloved Son, Second Story proudly presents Liz Gottman. I can see all of it on my face as I look in the mirror. Reflected, my skin is emptied of any color, gaunt, lonely, and cold. I'm standing in my lavender bathroom, the room dark, feet barefoot against a cool tile floor, my face reflected in the large rectangular mirror. I can see my dark makeup from the day before, smeared and lost in tears. The entire house is peaceful with no footsteps coming from upstairs. It's one in the morning and I'm up because I can't shut my brain off. I reflect on the conversation my mother and I had earlier. I was excited about a promotion I had gotten, excited that hard work was feeling like it was finally paying off. When I told her about it, the only thing she said in response was, well, does it come with a pay raise? Now you have to understand that my mother is awesome, but those words were wrong, and they brought back that feeling again. Defeat. It reminded me of when I graduated high school and gave my valedictorian speech, and my dad didn't show up. When I had one of my paintings in the Museum of Contemporary Art, and my mentor said I picked a bad representation of my work. All of those kinds of things just flooded back into me, and although I have let most of them go, I swear, moments like that make them come back. It's still hard for me to feel good about achievements because I always fear receiving criticism for them. Like I should be afraid of success because I don't deserve it. I couldn't look at my face anymore. Asleep? It's not long before I start to dream. I dream of myself alone in my family's summer home. The home is small and wide open. In the dream, it's nighttime, and I'm about to go to sleep when I remember I should lock the doors. As I step into the living room, I notice that a light is on and quickly turns off. Then a man who I don't recognize, but who doesn't look unfamiliar, moves towards me. He stops about three feet to the right of me. His scuffy brown hair and soft features are kind and not threatening, but, but I'm terrified. There's someone I don't know in my summer house. His sad eyes are empathetic and caring. He looks at me apologetically and says, I'm sorry. The terrified feeling is building and in the dream, I can feel the lightning in my chest telling me to run, hit him, cry, anything. Without another thought, I wake myself up. I open my eyes to see my bedroom again. I turn toward my clock, which is glowing red with 3.24 AM. And that's when I notice the figure in my doorway. 
the silhouette of a man. Shadowy and dark, his features are indistinguishable and foggy. He's standing at almost the exact distance of the man in my dream, and his build is similar, except awake he looks taller. I blink my eyes several times, hoping that this is remnants of my dream or some sleep haze that I haven't yet snapped myself out of, but after five or six blinks, the figure is still there, dark and motionless. I shoot up, straight, alert. The lightning is back in my chest. Once I sit up, the figure darts out of my doorframe, toward my hallway, and that's when I hear the crash. I shoot out of bed and run toward the bathroom. I stop before I enter to see my mirror on the floor in pieces. The mirror that's been on that wall for years has come straight off its industrial strength hooks and is now scattered all over. Not a clean slip, fall off the wall, but thrown so that there are no pieces bigger than my palm left. My vision darts frantically until it hits the wall, and the emptiness where the mirror hung is so paralyzingly frightening. I don't dare turn on the lights or pick up the pieces. I simply walk back to my bedroom, cuddle under the blankets, and force myself back to sleep. Now, if you're wondering why I didn't scream for someone or walk around with a bat or even call the cops, it's because I knew who was there. The same person who's been walking around my house for years. I knew the man in my dream and standing in my doorway. It was my brother, David. The thing is, David's dead. He died almost a year exactly before the day I was born. He died in the three flat my family still lives in now. Our Albany Park three flat has been in our family forever, and we kind of fluctuate between floors as time goes on. My brother David has always been the person I go to when I need support. This means me doing routine gravesite visits. I lay in the grass next to him and just talk. My body next to his, just like we were two friends lying in the grass talking about life. I imagine what advice he'd give me, pretend he said all the right things, even the things I didn't want to hear. Imagine that a soft breeze after one of my questions was his answer. And I always press two kissed fingers on the words beloved son before I leave. David gave me a necklace I wear when I need some extra strength. Well, more like I found the necklace. I found it the day my mother told me that David had committed suicide at the age of 23 and not died of schizophrenia like I had earlier believed. I was 11. I don't know why she told me then, but other than my siblings and my mother, no one else in my immediate family knows how he died. Everyone else thinks it was complications due to the schizophrenia, which I can't say is untrue either. After she told me, I had walked up the back hallway of our house to the third floor stairwell landing where he had jumped with a bedsheet tied around his neck. My toes clinched as I walked up the splintered wooden steps, every step deliberate. The smell of my mother's beef stew cooking below and dust filled the air. I stopped at the top and peered over the edge. The wood railing seemed so short and delicate. A height I was never afraid of now seemed so dangerous. As I looked at the edge of the platform, I thought I noticed scratch marks. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing. I thought of what the scene would look like, where he tied what. Maybe he was just trying to fly. If you were that ill, would you even know what suicide meant? I laid down on the dusty floor, my belly flat on the ground. I reached my arms out under the railing and clung to the edge, hanging on solid ground. 
pretending I could have grabbed his hands. A noise from below snapped me upward. Everything up here seemed so new, even though this landing had been my favorite place for hide-and-seek. Now I felt like I didn't know it at all. I looked at the old Lazy Boy, boxes of old golf supplies, videos, things from way before I was born. And then I saw it. A simple black lockbox that I had never noticed before. It felt like another secret I needed to know. I smoothed the dust off the top, opened the box, and pulled out a gold medallion necklace. It had a metal chain with a round pendant that had an Aquarius symbol on one side and a clover and horseshoe on the other, with the words, You Will Succeed, written on it, along with my lucky days and my lucky numbers. Now in my entire family, there are only two of us that are Aquarius, myself and David. So he gave me that necklace. I had felt his presence in the house before. Everyone has. Things move, fall, and shake constantly. I was raised with it being normal. Once, while I was in high school, the music box he gave my mother started to play during breakfast after years of being unused. Mike, my mother, and I sat there, motionless, listening to the soft melody, and when it stopped, she simply said, Oh, it's just Dave. He's having breakfast with us today. At these words, Mike dropped his fork and left. Once, while having a sleepover in the basement, the billiard balls on our pool table moved. They softly clacked together, and as my friends shrieked in fear and huddled together, I simply said, it's okay. It's my brother. He wants to play too. Since I've gotten older, the connection with my brother has deepened. And since the acknowledgement of his presence in the house is really the only constant outward acknowledgement of his existence at all anymore, I find my own ways to get to know him. I want to ask questions, but it's my family's secret. My family's hurt. No one talks about it unless we have to, and no one brings it up for more than a couple minutes. Pictures exist, but only in our bedrooms. And any little information I get are through passing comments like, Oh, you're artistic. Your brother was artistic. Or, oh, your brother could do that too. And I soak in these moments like glory. I do hear stories from Mike and my sister about when they were kids. Old stories of family times are open, but anything that has to do with his death or his illness is off limits. I don't ask my mother things because I don't want to bring back that pain. Same for my brother Mike. Mike is the one who found him. Imagine finding your older brother like that. Mike ran up the stairs to let the dog out when he saw David hanging, already dead. My mother told me that she still hears Mike scream sometimes in her head. This is why I don't ask questions. That's why I didn't tell them about the dream or about the mirror. Our entire relationship is based on him and I. The feeling I get when a light suddenly turns on. The calmness I feel after talking with him at the cemetery. Knowing that he'll be there to listen, support me, everything, always. I want to make him proud. I want him to see that the rest of my life can be his life too. The rest of his life that he never got. We'll live it together. The next morning, as I swept up the broken glass, I looked at the once terrifying empty wall. At the place I was once reflected, looking so sad and defeated the night before. And I had a wave of warmth come through me. David had given me exactly what I asked for. 
He was trying to be there for me, looking at me apologetically in my dream, giving me the exact words I needed to hear in the exact way I needed to hear them. Maybe breaking the mirror to say, you shouldn't look at yourself that way. Maybe he even looked at himself in that mirror one night, feeling something similar to the way I was feeling. Maybe he looked at himself in that mirror right before he jumped off the back stairs. That was Liz Gottman. This story was curated by Deb Lewis and produced by Eric Hazen. Chicago is a spooky place in October, with the crisp crunch of leaves underfoot and the bone-chilling wind howling across the lake. We asked our audience what they think the spookiest place in Chicago is. Here's what they had to say. On Clark Street. in there once because it was abandoned uh, and I swear I saw ghosts. It was just terrible and terrifying and it was a crackdown and it was awful. Bucktown at night creeps me out. But probably not for like spooky reasons and more just like it's a creepy neighborhood. <laughs> now you've just alienated a whole neighborhood. Well, I mean, it's... The spookiest spot in Chicago is the basement at Bub City. Any electronic devices will die down there. Also people have seen a little girl running around because it used to be the courthouse so there were a lot of if you go in downstairs you'll see like broken brick and bars and things from where the old cells used to be. Right next to the Chicago Yacht Club one time I saw underneath L tracks the, when the shadows flash and the noises and the and some of the spooky alleys where the dirt and the dead tries however you say that word has all come together that's always it is spooky stinky too <laughs> yes it is this place in Chicago is my apartment right now Chicago guys it gets spookier by the day that segment was produced by Ozzy Totten. Our second story this haunted evening comes from company member Deb Lewis. Deb has been teasing second story audiences for years and was nominated for a pushcart prize for her story Why I Hate Strawberries, featured in the second story anthology, Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low Flying Duck. 
with her story of mystical forces at work, titled Believing in Magic. Second Story presents Miss Deb Lewis. As the wheel of the year spins, we're now approaching Samhain, also known as Halloween, a most magical night when the veil between worlds grows thin and we can converse with ancestors. To do this, on your household altar, have you set out an airplane-sized bottle of Grandma's favorite whiskey and her old pipe? Or the dark chocolate and flowers that Aunt Jennifer loved along with that piece of embroidery she did with the tigers? Sounds superstitious, I know. And I don't expect you to believe what I'm about to tell you. We can't yet measure every phenomenon, and I can't prove what's experiential in nature. You have to live it. Being told about Second Story, even listening to a podcast, doesn't match coming out for a night of stories, food, and libations. Some of you will have to take my word for this, at least for now. Well, I've experienced enough mojo that I must believe. My Gail was born into magic, taught at so young an age there are things she's simply known as far back as memory casts. Gail's gifts are primarily healing and weather-related. When we hang out along Lake Michigan's shore, whatever's wrong with the weather gets fixed. Like a glaring sun always hides behind the one cloud in the sky. Or rain skirts away north or south. Then Gail calls the waves up for me. I, on the other hand, possibly due to a Methodist upbringing, have to ask lots of questions, read extensively, keep a daily practice, and figure things out as I go. I worked my first ritual after Gail's nursing colleague lied to get an undeserved raise, claiming credit for Gail's work and blaming Gail for her fuck-ups. She had to go. I tied knots in black thread to bind up her negativity, rolled a fragment of paper containing this bitch's signature around it, packed it all in foil to reflect her bullshit back at her, then put it in a spell jar on our altar. In a week, she left to take a job that suited her better. And we've moved a couple people, and always, always, they left happily. We've used different kinds of rituals, and somehow it never fails. In my limited experience, the shape, trappings, and tools matter less than the ritual's ability to focus your intention, your will, pouring these into your unconscious to work. Stepping into a more recent year, I drove us home from summer vacation on North Carolina's Outer Banks, and we raced the clock toward Chicago. It was Gail and I, our nine-year-old Molly, Gail's niece Lil, and Lil's infant son. Keith, the baby's father, had stayed home for his construction job. There was muttering that he wanted to be close to his dealers as well. After no sell from him for three days, Lil sat in the back of the van, focused into the distance. Now, I'd seen this during an extended argument. Keith at work and Lil on our sofa, staring off. And then she'd grin wickedly and say, Oh, you think so? Well, Keith, what about this? And she'd be silent again, like they could transmit back and forth through the ether. And now Lil was saying that Keith's voice in the ether had gone silent. 
She told Gail, even if he was unconscious, he'd be able to answer with something. So we raced for Chicago. I'm an impatient driver anyway. Stuck behind a slowpoke, I growled, move, fucker. Give me a sec, I'm working on it. Gail patted my knee and through my legs spread the tingling that comes when she's trying to smooth my mood. I put her hand back in her lap. Save it, doll. We've a long way to go and you're going to need all your juice before this is through. Because all this shit takes energy, right? I sent my urgency in a beam to the dude in front of us pushing from my guts. Minutes later, the Honda Civic zipped off the next exit. Gail said, he has no idea why he just did that. We poked him together? <laughs> he won't stop till he's in Maryland. She smiled. We poked a clear way to Chicago. Hours later, exhausted, we're at Lil and Keith's place. Gail stays in the van with the kids while Lil and I go in. Lil calls. Keith? No answer. Lil's pug hasn't met us at the door. I scan the loft downstairs for the dog, and it's utterly trash, which is so, so unkeith. I call, Evie? Nothing. Lil shot up the spiral steps. He fucking OD'd. Keith's dead. At the break in her voice, I climb up to the kitchen where Lil's ready to bolt. And then I see. He's slumped on the floor like a cast-off marionette, tipped against the oven door, unblinking, the oven light shining over his right shoulder. Lil pulls at his arm, yelling, Stand up! And I'm thinking, focus your eyes. Just, just blink, damn it. Lil couldn't lift him, gave up. He slid further down, arm dropping to the floor like a slab of tenderloin. Motherfucker was blue. Dead. I'll never forget those unblinking eyes. The dog sat in vigil three feet away, glancing shamefully from Lil to her discreet little crap pile under the kitchen table, to Lil to Keith. I grabbed the pug, rushed out, sent Gail in, sat in the van with the kids and the dog, called for an ambulance. A hundred years later, it arrives. Another hundred, they bring him out, and I don't know what happened in that kitchen, but by the time the jaded EMTs transferred Keith outside, he was blinking again, and he closed his eyes as they tilted him into the ambulance. It was then that my head went wild. It was all I could do to move slow cars out of the way. I couldn't imagine what kind of energy Lil and Gail had pushed into him or from where they would have raised it. I'm not privy to exactly how, and it's not something to ask about. But Gail, the healer, and Lil, <laughs> Lil, who's on a whole different level like a demigod is doing stuff I might never understand, they brought him back from the dead. Six weeks later, he was working his construction job as if nothing ever happened. And then last year brought it home that magic is about energy flow. 
And what's more, money is a form of energy, and worrying about it damns not the outflow. It damns the inflow. And if there's anything more stressing than slow traffic, it's money. I'm a college professor, and between semesters, money dries up. This summer, I'd paid all August bills on my last paycheck in July. But on August 12th, we didn't have a clue how we were going to pay September's rent. Gail had just used the last of our credit on prescriptions. Medicines you can't just cold turkey or it'll mess you up. And I felt trapped. Spun up in cussing the rig system, banks, Congress. Buttering saltines at the kitchen table, Gail said. It's going to work out. I turned on her. I don't have a paycheck for another month. The jokers who are supposed to be paying you are playing lawyer games again, so how exactly is it going to turn out? She put her arms around my waist. Money's been tight before. We've always pulled through, haven't we? I nodded. It's going to be all right. Where's the moon, she asked. And I thought a moment. Full? Tomorrow? She said, let's wash pennies tonight. We'll use them to buy bread tomorrow. There's not a slice in the house. This was one of the first magics Gail ever taught me, as her grandmother, Miss Betsy, taught her. To save any pennies found laying about, you know, the ones not even bums pick up, and let them know they're appreciated by washing them in salt water on a full or a waxing moon and spend them on something truly needed, and the pennies will call their friends. It'd been so long since we'd needed to do this, I'd forgotten. So we washed pennies, and with them bought a loaf of bread. On August 29th, $29,000 appeared in our checking account. I shit you not. It was such a huge amount of money that Gail called me out of my office with a panicked voice and an ATM receipt in her hand. I think there's a mistake. Do you know anything about this? After some research, it turned out that the unexpected deposit was legit. Social Security approved her disability application, and the two years of retro pay hit before the letter explaining this could run the maze of the Chicago Post Office. So, there you go. That's my advice for the next full moon. Pick up pennies. Wash them. Use them on something wise, like bread or eggs. Or that dark chocolate for Aunt Jennifer and her tigers. That was Deb Lewis. This story was curated by artistic director Amanda Delheimer-Diamond and was produced by Eric Hazen. What noises have you been hearing in the dark? And what are the stories behind those sounds? Second Story will be celebrating Halloween all October, culminating in a spooky masquerade cocktail party on October 27th 
at the Prohibition-era cocktail lounge Untitled in the Chicago Loop. Shine up those wingtips, bust out those party dresses, and don't forget to grab a mask, because we're bringing Halloween out of the gutters and into the ballroom. For tickets or for more information, visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. Second Story is a volunteer-based nonprofit organization and as such relies greatly on donations from our audience. If you find yourself in a giving mood this Halloween, visit our website and see how you can contribute your time, energy, or financial support. Your gifts are greatly appreciated. You can always reach me for comment on this or any Second Story podcasts at ozzy at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story and on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind-the-scenes looks at our curation process. This Second Story podcast was produced by Eric Hazen with a special thank you to Sherry Pentabone. I'm Ozzy Totten, and this is the Second Story Spookcast. Happy haunting. It's a-